Team Cool Books, Episode 34 All His Games Were Going to Come True It's easy to recover some of the initial surprise of coming to this subtle knife from the Golden Compass for the first time. The sequel is noticeably slimmer, with significantly fewer chapters, and no parts clearly delineating an act structure or moving through an orderly sequence of three progressively more remote settings. There's no highfalutin epigraph from John Milton or anywhere else this time. Just the note, The Subtle Knife is the second part of the trilogy that began with The Golden Compass. That first book was set in a world like ours, but different. This book begins in our own world. On the cover of my old copy, Lyra looks more assured but no less curious. There she is, in a sleeveless blouse, Pan in his panther form. So, we've crossed into new and warmer territory, and the cover prominently shows that the continuation of Lyra and her demon's story will involve someone else, too. A serious-looking boy holding a cat for a companion. The cat's ears are torn. The first chapter with its short story-esque title, The Cat and the Hornbeam Trees, in three or four distinct sections accomplishes much of what the first three chapters did in the first book. It starts in medias res, establishing the conflict, then flashes back in time, filling out the world and the characters. And most importantly, the chapter introduces us to a totally new protagonist, Will Perry, and brings him through a harrowing escape and a strange window to meet Lyra in the other world she entered at the end of the Golden Compass. Will's story opens with a scene of tension in the midst of normalcy. Will tugged at his mother's hand and said, Come on, come on but his mother hung back. She was still afraid. Will looked up and down the narrow street in the evening light, along the little terrace of houses, each behind its tiny garden and its box hedge, with the sun glaring off the windows of one side and leaving the other in shadow. There wasn't much time. People would be having their meal about now, and soon there would be other children around to stare and comment and notice. It was dangerous to wait, but all he could do was persuade her as usual. In this way, we get the first instance of one of the many inversions and variations on themes, language, images from the first book. There, in the first book, we were tracking closely on Lyra's perspective and were invited to see something strange, the demon, as perfectly normal, whereas here we see that in what appears normal, and what Will desperately hopes appears normal, a boy and his mother showing up for a piano lesson, there is a mystery, a story. And other little details play on the first scene of the decanter of Tokai, and thus bring out the motif of parallel worlds. We have the two of them, Will and his mother, framed by the same shape of a surrounding, not a formal dining hall, but a suburban street, and once more, it's almost mealtime, and the sun is on one side of it, 
leaving the other in shadow. There's that other weird echo in Mrs. Cooper's name. That was the scientist's name at Bolvanger. He'll even appear in the story later. And we get Will's age up front. He's 12. And that helps to point out the social consequences for a boy that age to be seen holding his mother's hand. But ominously, he knew what would happen if he let go. The piano teacher, smelling of lavender water, is almost as surprised to see Will as we are. It's been over a year since his last lesson. I think the book was probably released a little over a year since the first came out. The narrator's skillful at doing something extra with the descriptions here, because Mrs. Cooper does notice. She looked at the woman with the untidy hair and the distracted half-smile, and at the boy with the fierce, unhappy glare in his eyes, the tight-set lips, the jutting jaw. And then she saw that Mrs. Perry, Will's mother, had put makeup on one eye but not on the other, and she hadn't noticed, and neither had Will. Something was wrong. She also notices the smell of their clothes and their family resemblance. She addresses the boy as William, and his mother doesn't speak again when she's inside the house. He insists that she's not ill, just confused, needs someone to be kind to her for a few days. The bruise on her cheek, never explained, suggests what she might do to herself if not looked after closely. And Will's foresight is conveyed by his provision of food, enough for her to share and by her own simple kindness as well. Of course, the older woman is still wary, asking if there isn't someone else, some neighbor. But no neighbors can be trusted, and no family is left. Will says, it's only us. And to her suggestion about social services, which proves to be Will's main fear, he can only say no more and more strongly. He trails off before saying where he's going, and vaguely substitutes the cryptic, I have things to do. And we know, within this vague possibility space, Pullman's characters tend to find something unexpected. And yet Will has to leave more behind than Lyra, right at the start before his adventure properly begins. It's a sympathy that we as readers feel, which also captivates Mrs. Cooper. Seeing the boy's love and his mother's needs, she couldn't say no. In one more slight reference to his own biography, as Pullman spent time in Australia before moving back to England, the piano teacher says her grown daughter is now in Australia. And with that, we're off. Will says he's going to meet a friend, and this turns out to be true. We have his clumsy kiss goodbye, like Lyra's to Roger. And we can see this one, too, as a Judas kiss. But this is anything but a simple betrayal. His eyes glistening, he remembers his manners, says goodbye and thanks, just like Lyra did with the master, though she wasn't so emotional, perhaps. And this story, as Mrs. Cooper recognizes, 
Will is in charge somehow. It's implacable. And the uncanniness of such a circumstance will only escalate as his thoughts turn to the empty house. That ordinary house is shabby and perhaps squalid without the grandeur of Lyra's home. It's unique only in its importance for Will. Though most of the shrubs in front of his house are dead for want of watering, the cat Moxie is waiting for him under the still-living hydrangea. The refrain about not being noticed sounds here. It's interesting to contrast with Lyra, who infiltrated the forbidden retiring room and who's mostly concerned with noticing interesting things rather than not being noticed. She allows herself to get caught so as to save Lord Asriel's life, and she's rewarded by getting to see and, see and hear lots more interesting things. Whereas here, Will is mostly concerned with not being noticed, though there is one thing in particular he is looking for, and he will escape after killing a man. First, he feeds his cat, a humble act of responsibility of a sort we would never associate with Lyra. The men, who are they, provide the scene with urgency, even before they make their appearance. He was looking for a battered green leather writing case. There are a surprising number of places to hide something that size, even in any ordinary modern house. You don't need secret panels and extensive cellars in order to make something hard to find. And so, like holding her hand, only much more, Will's ashamed looking through his mother's drawers, and in his conscientious thoroughness, he includes his own room in the search. He takes a break for some baked beans on toast, his last meal in his own world, and the phone rings, and he freezes. The indications all point to this being our world, too, in fact. And finally, he lay on his bed, fully clothed, and fell asleep at once his dreams tense and crowded, his mother's unhappy, frightened face always there, just out of reach. And almost at once, it seemed, though he'd been asleep for nearly three hours, he woke up knowing two things simultaneously. First, he knew where the case was, and second, he knew that the men were downstairs, opening the kitchen door. This dream seemed similar to Lyra's reading of the Elysiometer. But if anything, the understanding that comes with it is more immediate. This unexplained knowledge welling up from Will's unconscious makes sense given how much time he has spent worrying at the problem. In the spare room, in the side compartment of the sewing machine, detail that recalls Penelope's weaving in the Odyssey, he finds the green leather case. Then, in the silence, the creak of the top step his home field advantage, and about to be mightily reinforced by the cat. He watches the flashlight beam through the crack around the door, so different from, and yet formally not unlike, Lyra in the wardrobe watching the lantern slides. The most important, though, is what neither of them sees. The cat, which trips the man when Will rushes him. Seeing her there might have made Will lose his nerve. It's much worse for the man, though. If she's a little stepped on, 
he gets his head cracked open by the fall down the stairs. Why the other man doesn't chase, Will wonders, but presumably they, too, care more about not attracting too much attention, sure that they'll get him in the end with their cars and their cell phones. And again, normalcy and strangeness contend. You have the milkman, the dawn, while Will goes running down alleys and backyards, goes to ground under another bush. He overcomes his shock at realizing that the man was dead. He worries about his mother and Moxie. Moxie, that word you hear in old movies, that describes Lyra perfectly. He turns to the practical, to the things in his bag. He reflects, everything was there. Everything was going according to plan, really, except that he killed someone. And here's where we get the flashback, invited by rules of pacing to slow down a bit after that frantic turning point. We learn Will realized when he was seven. So this whole narrative, too, is filtered through that younger consciousness, that their game in the supermarket was going to become real. That gives some insight into Will's concern with not being noticed, that his job is to look around when no one is watching to tell his mom to grab things and put them in the cart for them, where they become invisible. It's them against the world, and the way they trusted each other. The simple diction conveys the child-level view, but his credulity grows more complicated. His mom's paranoia, the enemies tracking them by credit card numbers, give way to his understanding of their disconnect with reality, that whatever the real danger is, it's not as simple as the game. But he pretends, out of care for her feelings. We'll realize slowly and unwillingly that those enemies of his mother's were not in the world out there, but in her mind. That made them no less real, no less frightening and dangerous just meant he had to protect her even more carefully. So, the way to approach such enemies, it seems, is by gaining imaginative allies. Will asks about his father. He's like Lyra in this way, at least, that he's passionately curious. Perhaps like Pullman, too whose aviator father disappeared when he was a child. Was he a rich man? Where did he go? Why did he go? Is he dead? Will he come back? What was he like? The last question was the only one she could help him with. John Perry had been a handsome man, a brave and clever officer in the Royal Marines, who had left the army to become an explorer and lead expeditions to remote parts of the world. Will thrilled to hear about this. No father could be more exciting than an explorer. From then on, in all his games, he had an invisible companion. And again, much of Pullman's, or pretty much any other child's imagination, his reading, his games, imaginative play, seems to go into this summary. Now Will's dad becomes his invisible companion, his imaginary friend, 
in the jungle, on the stormy seas, in the bat cave. He wonders that there are no pictures or photos that correspond to those scenes in his imagination of his great father riding on sledges, exploring jungles, rescuing trophies, or to get a little meta, is there nothing written about him in any book? And there is, of course, only we wouldn't have noticed it, immersed as we are. It's in the Golden Compass, too, though I wonder if even Pullman knew it at the time, or only on rereading his story and gathering ideas for the sequels did he pick up on Stanislaus Grumman as a good way to connect. And in the only passage we hear in Will's mother's own voice, one day you'll follow in your father's footsteps. You're going to be a great man too. You'll take up his mantle. And at the end of the story, he does, literally. For now, though he doesn't know what a mantle is, um, he understood the sense of it and felt uplifted with pride and purpose. All his games were going to come true. His father was alive, lost somewhere in the wild, and he was going to rescue him and take up his mantle. It was worth living a difficult life if he had a great aim like that. So, the thought of this gives him pride and purpose, reality. It's like in Nietzsche's famous saying, it's quoted by Viktor Frankl, among others, can bear any how with a why. There are also the times when he learned how to cook and clean, how not to be noticed, fearing authorities would separate them. And then she blessed him. Those words, authority and bless, so richly significant, get a new kind of layer of meaning here. Presumably, it's during one of these times that she set up his piano lessons, too. And there's another kind of tension here, as in an alternative, imaginative world, it's Will and his mother, not his father at all, as companions. He wants to live with her forever. Then one of the imaginative paths starts to come true, and the other has to be let go the men came, asking about John Perry, upsetting his mother, but they retreated before Will's deadly anger. Suddenly his games weren't childish. For whatever reason, he comes home early from school to catch them, looking through the rooms. Another day, bringing us up to the present, he's going to bring his mom home from the park as she's touching the slats and the benches, and this activity will take on more concrete meaning for us later, with the specters, and then later again in the botanic garden. And they're searching the house. By then he knows what they're after, that writing case, which he would never look through, but knows that it holds letters from his father. So Will's plan takes shape. He's going to find the case and go to Oxford for answers. He'll have to be, or rather, not be noticed harder than he'd ever done before. This is another instance of negative capability turned inside out. 
Later that day, toward midnight, in fact, Will was walking out of the city of Oxford, forty miles away. We don't see him in Oxford, but we will later. That, in fact, there is an odd assertion of the narrator's, I think, helping to emphasize the length of Will's day on the run that we get in brief summary form here. It's one that's repeated later when Dr. Malone is returning to the science building. Don't know quite what to make of that. Anyway, as we've ranged over the past five years or so, this short recap of his past 24 hours isn't too jarring for all its ordinariness. The town, the Burger King, going to a cinema to hide, the technique he'll deploy with Lyra the next day, and the endless road through the suburbs heading north. The detail of direction recalls Lyra's journey, and his lostness recalls her wandering in the London of the throwing nets. But something very different intervenes in Will's case. With nowhere to hide, no open country, he suddenly finds himself the perfect hiding place. An entire country, a whole world, a whole universe. It's at the confluence of Sunderland Ave, we later learn, and the Oxford Ring Road. At this time of night there was very little traffic, and the road where he stood was quiet with comfortable houses set back behind a wide expanse of grass on either side. Planted along the grass at the road's edge were two lines of hornbeam trees, odd-looking things with perfectly symmetrical, close-leafed crowns, more like children's drawings than like real trees. The streetlights made the scene look artificial, like a stage set. Will was stupefied with exhaustion, and he might have gone on to the north, or he might have laid his head on the grass under one of those trees and slept. But as he stood trying to clear his head, he saw a cat. This tabby is like Moxie, reminds him of his longing for home, and the tears come. And so this is one meaning of the cat and the hornbeam trees. But the other is to go through to another world. The trees are the setting, the cat guide. If Lyra in the wardrobe recalls Lucy finding her way into Narnia, the row of trees recalls the wood between the worlds. If Pullman ever got around to reading that one, I'm not sure. He watches the cat behave curiously, patting at something invisible in the air, and then curiosity overcame wariness, just as it will for Will shortly steps through into the other world. He blinks, but it's really there. And that word invisibility has already taken on great importance. But here it receives yet more. There's nothing there to fix on and can only be seen from some angles. But Will knew without the slightest doubt that that patch of grass on the other side was in a different world. He couldn't possibly have said why. He knew it at once, as strongly as he knew that fire burned and kindness was good. He was looking at something profoundly alien. And that's much like his knowledge after waking up. Only in this case, 
comes suddenly and not after years of dreaming. So when he goes through, he comes to the tall palms, the boulevard, the cafes, the stars, this hot night with scents of flowers in the sea, the backdrop of moonlight on hills, villas, classical temples. All this contrasts as sharply with Will's world as they do with Lyra's, though in different ways. The geography seems to overlap somewhat more closely with Will's outskirts of Oxford than with Lyra's remote Svalbard. But on the other hand, at least there, there was a sea, albeit a frozen one. Like Lyra towards the end of her journey, Will feels he is dreaming but awake, the state in which mysterious things become visible, perhaps. And again, like the cat, he goes exploring. The impression of places he's never been, the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, a kind of place where people slightly older than Will, might go out and dance late at night. But there's no one here. Half-eaten food and drinks show that everyone left suddenly. With his usual integrity, Will pays with a coin for taking a lemonade. And then he sees from the money in the till the word corona, but no more. Crown, the meaning of that word, but also the astronomical phenomenon appears around the sun, the sort of light that we saw playing around Lord Asriel's head. The contrast between the grand drama of the way Asriel and Lyra crossed and the way Will quietly does is accentuated by his lonely wandering through the alleys in the silence possessed by wonder. That power of possession, of ownership, would be critical as far as the knife, but here it's to take in the whole landscape. And oh yeah, he has that lemonade too. He drank it. And how different from the hot chocolate. We see bougainvillea, a kind of plant, but a rich word too. It fits right in with the opera house, the paths, the oleander, that same image from the book by Garfield, which Pullman returns to in the subterranean fairyland of La Belle Sauvage. And at last, there's no sound but for the waves, nothing visible on the water but a diving platform. Will is drawn into the sea. His nakedness is carefree, not drawn attention to. As he looks back, the cliffs, the hills, casino gardens, he feels safe. No one could follow him here. The men who'd searched the house would never know. The police would never find him. He had a whole world to hide in. For the first time since he'd run out of his front door that morning, Will began to feel secure. Whereas we, reading, know that safe is the one thing he cannot be, for there to be a story at all. This is one of the purest passages of world-building in Pullman's whole work. It's the counterpart to the Lyra's Jordan chapter, and it only serves to provide a piece which, of course, cannot last. Something of that ominous tone comes in the empty, 
hotels which feel too grand. And he kept moving down the waterfront until he found a little cafe that looked like the right place. He couldn't have said why. It was very similar to a dozen others, with its first-floor balcony laden with flower pots and its tables and chairs on the pavement outside, but it welcomed him. Yet another example of not being able to say why and yet knowing this is the right thing. Um, the pictures of the boxer and the accordion player, so fighting and art, Will and Lyra. The place is shabby, like Will's house, but comfortable, and like parts of Lyra's Jordan. With all the books and magazines and photos, we're still not given any further hints about the language of this place. Will, it seems, is a much bigger reader than Lyra is, or at least there's more important things to encounter right now. Something made his skin prickle before he opened the last door. His heart raced. He wasn't sure if he'd heard a sound from inside, but something told him that the room wasn't empty. He thought how odd it was that this day had begun with someone outside a darkened room and himself waiting inside, and now the positions were reversed. And as he stood wondering, the door burst open and something came hurtling at him like a wild beast. But his memory had warned him. He wasn't standing quite close enough to be knocked over. And then their mutual realization of what one another is. This is another thing which will become a refrain between Will and Lyra. Here, signaled by their first meeting on either side of the door. Will's the more prepared, and Lyra crouches away from him like a cat when she's aware of his bare chest. Though, suggests in other ways it's she who is further along towards maturity. And there was a cat beside her, to his astonishment, a large wild cat, as tall as his knee, fur on end, teeth bared, tail erect. Who are you? Lyra Silvertongue. Do you live here? No. Then what is this place, this city? I don't know. Where do you come from? From my world. It's joined on. Where's your demon? So, they have that in common as well, coming from different worlds. The biggest difference between them, seemingly, is the question of the demon. They're astonished by each other. Lyra, because he hasn't got one, and Will, because she has and by how Pan changes and glares, and then he realizes that they're afraid, as if he were a ghost. If we weren't sure before, the pronunciation seems to be demon, which is how Will says it. I don't know what you mean. Oh, is that your demon? again, Will treats Lyra as if she were a strange cat. She's characteristically vague on the timeline. She's been there a few days, she says first. She's looking for dust. And as to what that is, I don't know, she says. Forgetting or maybe ignoring. This is Parslow uh, admonishment. 
or not Mrs. Parsons, Mrs. Lonsdale's admonishment about not saying don't know when someone asks you a question. Um, oh, that's about how long she's been there. Um, and she's just not sure yet if she'll tell him about dust. So Lyra's wonder at the cold of the fridge, which Pan probes into butterfly formed, and at the cola, and at the beans, and the can opener, all forms another important respect in which she and Will are kindred spirits. Though the objects of their wonder are different, they're alike in the sense that for the other, the wonderful thing is perfectly normal, be it a demon or a can of cola, which poignantly plays on both the sherbet tip that Lyra and Roger were playing with after her story about Lord Asriel, and the poison wine, which may have been behind it. Will says he'll drink some to prove it isn't poison. Omelettes and baked beans may well exist in Lyra's world, but not in her social world, insulated by servants. So they're from different worlds in that sense, too. There's little ways in which Pan and Will interact, which are some of my favorite parts of this whole chapter just as demons are so fascinating to readers. Watching Pan dip his paw in the eggs and get a scolding from Will, and now she says she's been there days and days and ate all the bread that she could find. And while he cooks, she watches appraisingly. Perhaps it's partly what she sees there that makes her willing to listen to him, if she sees the sense. They sit together awkwardly. Remember at Bolvanger, boys sat with boys and girls with girls. In the huge silence, she fidgets the goldfinch pan, pecks at bits of food, while Will eats slowly, aware of the girl. So the narrator jumps back to look at her from his perspective. This is something we've seen Lyra capable of at times, but which will happen much more often from here on out, chiefly through the perspective of Will, but also through other characters that relate themselves to Lyra. Here's how he sees her. Her expression was a mixture of the very young, when she first tasted the cola, and a kind of deep, sad wariness. Her eyes were pale blue, and her hair would be a darkish blonde once it was washed, because she was filthy, and she smelled as if she hadn't bathed for days. Laura? Laura? Lyra. Lyra Silvertongue? Yes. Where is your world? How did you get here? So this is probably what we've been wondering this whole time, too, ever since the book opened, not with Lyra, but with Will. Um, but, but she'll get the last word in the chapter. Um, as she's, after all, Lyra's silver tongue. Jumping ahead a bit, there was a light on the sea front outside shining straight up into the room, and in the glow reflected from the ceiling she looked down at the sleeping boy. He was frowning. His face glistened with sweat. He was strong and stocky, not as formed as a grown man, of course, because he wasn't much older than she was, but he'd be powerful one day. How much easier if his demon had been visible. She wondered what its form might be, and whether it was fixed yet. Whatever its form was, it would express a nature that was savage and courteous and unhappy. 
So she doesn't explain her name, but she does say how she walked, and it was all foggy. She's looking for dust, and there's no one to ask. Now, why she hasn't asked the alethiometer, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it's just not helpful to ask questions like that. Uh, maybe it's like wishing for more wishes or something. But, but she's been three days, maybe four now, she says, and it's special dust. But she doesn't know she'll tell him about it yet. Um, uh, Pan becomes a rat, the natural enemy of cats, which Will has been associated with, just as Lyra has in this chapter. And then she says to him, you have got a demon. You have. You wouldn't be human else. You'd be half dead. And then he asks about, we... Me and Pantalaimon, us, but you, your demon ain't separate from you. It's you, a part of you. You're part of each other. And there anyone in your world like us? Are they all like you, with their demons all hidden away? So yet another invisible thing to think about. Um, she also makes the connection, uh, once he mentions scholars in Oxford, where he comes from, but they're both speaking English, aren't they? So, mentions that he came through a kind of window. She demands that, she, that he show her, but uh, although she probably could find out by herself, she, again, concedes. Um, she does wash the dishes, although not till after he goes up to sleep. Um, incredulous as she is, as I thought, uh, when there's plenty of useful, uh, perfectly useful ones that are clean. Um, but he's got the notion that you need to treat the place right. I think that's probably the narrator's perspective as well. Uh, so much of the chapter evoking this new place. Um, and that question that she does ask of the Elysiometer, what is he? A friend or an enemy? Elithiometer answered, He is a murderer. When she saw the answer, she relaxed at once. He could find food and show her how to reach Oxford, and those were powers that were useful, but he might still have been untrustworthy or cowardly. A murderer was a worthy companion. She felt as safe with him as she'd felt with Yorick Birnison, the armored bear. She swung the shutter across the open window so the morning sunlight wouldn't strike in on his face and tiptoed out. <clears throat> so, the murderer, that's just what she used to escape the man with the lemur demon. Um, and uh, we'll see him referred to again later. Um, and that mention of Yorick, uh, see that play out a bit more as well. Um, but the final touch there is her own thoughtfulness, which is uh, so tender, uh, bodes well. So we know that this is a love story, I think, from the first meeting. There's the seed of it here, at least. And they'll talk about their first meeting later on in the third book, I think each claiming that they loved the other first. Um, came across this passage in Plato's Symposium the other week. Um, this comes from Socrates talking about what he learned in turn 
uh, for Diotima that love is a great spirit, demon, and like all spirits, he is intermediate between the divine and the mortal. <laughs>